Good morning. Will you please stand with me for the reading of God's word? Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 7, verses 11 through 19. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one, the one, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And this is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. All right, let's pray. As you're being seated, let's pray. Fathers, we come to your word. Give us, uh, give us minds to understand. Um, Father, give me clarity of communication. And Father, give us humble spirits that, uh, that, are, open, that are open to knowing and applying and loving your truth. I ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. Before we get to point one, I need to give you two quick points in my intro, okay? They will not be up on the screen. I have intro points. I usually, for the record, I usually have two or three of those. Uh, that's, that's usually the case. Uh, the first one is this, the key to the whole thing. The key to this passage, indeed, the, the key, uh, uh, the goal of the Christian life is that we would draw near to God. We would draw near to God. The primary goal of the Christian life is not getting to heaven. That bag of trash has been the source of much of the nominal Christianity that we get to enjoy this day. The primary goal of the Christian life is not a relationship with Jesus. This, again, has been the source of much garbage in our day, particularly lots of emotional, effeminate Christianity. It's also the source of a lot of struggle and heartache as people bounce in and out of the feeling of relationship. The primary goal of the Christian life isn't feeling near to God or feeling good about Jesus. Even as our vision as a church is treasuring Christ above all, 
But it's more about whether, it's less about whether or not you leave, leave here gushing over Jesus and more about you choosing to esteem him higher than anything else. To proclaim him as more treasurable than anything else rather than feeling and gushing over him as a treasure. The goal of God in all He does on behalf of mankind is changing the physical address of our soul. Let me say that again. The goal of God in all He does on our behalf is changing the physical address of our soul. The title of my sermon is Change of address. And God does that better than the United States Postal Service does. I'm still getting mail from the previous person that lived at my house. Four months later. Now I think our struggle when we come to this passage, like in verse 19 is where he talks about this drawing near to God. But I think our struggle when we, when we come into a passage like this, and particularly a thought like that, is that drawing near to God is approached first and foremost as an emotional experience rather than an objective reality. I don't think that the idea of drawing near to God in this passage is primarily about an emotional experience. It's not subjective. We tend to think, how can I feel near to God? How can I Feel close to God. How can I have some warm fuzzies? How do I know this? Well, we we tend to when we hear sermons, we are we feel um, empty if we don't leave with a warm fuzzy. Well, usually when people say preacher, good job today, half the time they don't mean it, but the other half they mean like you gave me a warm fuzzy. Or how about our study time, like your devotional time? Do you feel less than if you don't leave that moment with a warm fuzzy? We expect even the godly people around us. Like we, we want this idea of drawing near to God. I think our struggle is to, to think of it first and foremost as an emotional experience rather than an objective Reality, But when you study this passage, I think you see that our drawing near to God, this being drawn near to God is an objective reality based on the objective reality of the superiority of Christ's priesthood. And that's the aim of today. That drawing near to God is based on the objective reality of the superiority of Christ's priesthood. Drawing near to God is a change of address. The change in location, not based on your doings, but ultimately on Christ's. <laughs> that was point one in my intro. Now the second one. <clears throat> Viewing the law. So really like these two points, I have to set these up for us to, to walk through this. The second is viewing the law. Which law? 
I think it's a helpful distinction for us as we, as we get into Hebrews is to understand that the law being dealt with in this passage is primarily the ceremonial law. So it's the, the part of the law that dealt with transgressions and the penalty for those transgressions. The ceremonial law, the sacrificial law is another term for it. So don't think like Ten Commandments here. You've got to set that part aside. It's also known as like the moral law. Put that aside for a moment. He's not referring to that here specifically. Now, underneath this point of viewing the law, let's think about viewing the law before Christ came versus viewing the law after Christ. So pre-Christ and then post-Christ. So right now, pre-Christ. There was really only two ways to live. There's really only two ways to live, period. Before Christ and after Christ. Two ways. The first way is to view the law as insufficiently external, temporary, and pointing to a better priest. So that's way one. You live viewing the law as insufficiently external, meaning it cannot deal with the internal, but only the external, that it was temporary, and that it was ultimately pointing to something better. So you can live that way. That's way one. The other way is to view the law as sufficiently external, permanent, and an end itself. Now, I know those are big concepts. It boils down to this. You can view the law and its guidance on your external doings, your righteous works, as being sufficient to save you. Or you can view the law and its requirement of these works, but it being insufficient to change you internally. Therefore, you need someone to save you internally. And therefore, that part of the law is temporary, pointing to something better. Those are your two ways to live. It's the the same for us now, even post-Christ. You can live with your laws, or even God's laws, and think that if I just do all these external things, I can be saved. Or you can think that that law points to something bigger and grander. Those are the two ways. You see, the law could only deal with the external, period. And if you viewed that as permanent and sufficient, namely external acts of righteousness to be sufficient and no heart change needed, that's a bad place to be. That's a bad place to be now. It was a bad place to be pre-Christ. But if you viewed the law as temporary, then you believed it to be insufficient. So the good Jews believed the law to be temporary and insufficient and pointing them ultimately to something greater. Hebrews 10.1, for since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come. So 
to those in the Old Testament and even for us today, labor with encouragement from a promised future greater priest. That's how we live by faith in good works. Now, post-Christ, which gets us into where we're at Hebrews particularly, if you view the law and its external as sufficient, then Christ is insufficient and your outward righteousness is. And that's the danger. That's the danger of Hebrews. That's what he's warning them against. See, now that Christ has come, the thing to which the law was pointing, Jesus, he's here. Now, any turn back to the law is necessarily a rejection of the sufficiency of the one whom could deal with the internal, that which the law could not deal with. So you're hearing things like external, internal, those are key words for today. So that was the danger, is turning back to the law as a means of dealing with our sin, particularly it's a, a, uh, a belief that it's sufficient even though it can only deal with my external. It can only deal with the acts of righteousness and not with my heart, not with the inside. That's called being a legalist. I can do righteousness to be right with God without being changed on the inside. So here's the juxtaposition, and then we're going to get right into point one here. Here's the juxtaposition. If you choose the path of proving yourself via external acts of righteousness, your address stays the same. It cannot change. If you choose the path of Christ's righteousness, your address is changed. Don't be the first guy. It's that simple. So two parts. Here's my two points for today. First, the imperfection of the inferior priesthood. The imperfection of the inferior priesthood. Second point will be the perfection of the superior priesthood. It will be the inverse of this. For now, the imperfection of the inferior priesthood. Let me define a couple more terms for us. When we think about imperfect or inferior, do not think bad, evil, or totally useless. Do not think bad, evil, or totally useless. It had a purpose. And when rightly understood, the old covenant priesthood was a means of salvation. A fancy term for that is the old covenant administration of salvation. Then you have the new covenant administration. It had a purpose. And when rightly understood, it was the means of saving work Although it pointed forward to Christ's ultimate saving work, it was still a means of salvation. But it was imperfect. It was inferior. It was not what the administration of Christ's saving work is and what this was pointing to. 
So let's talk about that imperfection, the inferiority of the old covenant priesthood. First of all, it was never meant to be permanent. It was never meant to be permanent. Here's the problem with permanent. If you thought the law that could only deal with the outside was permanent, then you didn't believe it was pointing forward to Christ who would deal with something permanently. So those Jews in the Old Testament that believed the law to be permanent were not believing in something future to come that would deal with the inside. So they were not redeemed. But it was never meant to be permanent. Now you have to connect a few dots here with what we've done thus far. Last week, Melchizedek comes to Abraham when? Before the Levites and the law. Right? So before the law is given, before the Levitical priesthood is given, Melchizedek comes to Abraham. Now Melchizedek, the next dot, is a priest of the Most High God. He's not from the tribe of Levi. And what we learn is that Melchizedek will be a priest forever. So Melchizedek comes, if we're thinking chronologically, Melchizedek comes, and he's spoken of being a priest forever, but he does not come from the line of Levi. Then later the law comes, and the Levitical priesthood but hey, this guy's supposed to be forever. Then what's the point of these guys? It's temporary. Because this line's going to last forever. This priesthood's going to last forever. This one is just for a space and time. The Levitical priesthood. Therefore, when God established the Levitical priesthood with Aaron in Exodus 28, the good Jews would have known this is not permanent. There will be something greater to come. It's just a shadow. It's just something that resembles what is to come. It's a type of what is to come. David knew this. And David comes much later chronologically. But David knew this. Psalm 110, verse 4, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, in case you didn't know what sworn means. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The order of Melchizedek. Again, the, Melchizedek and his order is not from Aaron and the Levites. And that order of priesthood will be forever. You see, David knew that the provision of salvation through the law, the Aaron and the Levites, would be temporary. And he knew something better, something eternal, is coming. Something in the line of Melchizedek. And he knew that this priesthood would be indestructible. And we'll get to that in a bit. Because the, particularly David, he understands the, the frailty and the brokenness of the Levitical priesthood. It was destructible. But this line, this priesthood that's going to come from Melchizedek will be indestructible. David understands. That's why Psalm 110 is being quoted. Secondly, so it was not meant to be permanent. Second, it couldn't bring them to perfection. The Levitical priesthood 
could not bring the old covenant believer, nor anyone today, to perfection. Verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than the one named after the order of Aaron? You're like, what in the world is he talking about here? He's just simply saying this. If you could be perfected through that temporary priesthood, the Levitical priesthood, then there would be no need for one to come after the line of Melchizedek. You would need that. But the reality is, he's saying, it could not obtain perfection. Now let's talk about perfection. What What does he mean by perfection? My my. Third point later, I told you I only had two, I actually got three. But my, my third point later today, uh, I mean later today, later this morning, hopefully. Uh, <laughs> was that a slip? It's a slip. <laughs> uh, I got 24 minutes. Uh, perfection. I'm going to talk more of that in my third point. But for right now, perfection here does not. It, it, it is, does not mean spiritual maturity. Even though that's a goal of our faith, being mature like Christ, Ephesians, that isn't the ultimate goal of our faith. Spiritual maturity is a means to another end. But before, before I get into like a little more what perfection looks like, Look at the immediate context here. If you, if you don't have your Bible, you, you really should have it open. In verse 11, now if perfection had been obtainable, blah, 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 it's not. It can only be through uh, the line of Melchizedek and ultimately this indestructible life of Jesus. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of the weaknesses. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. So this perfection that isn't obtainable through Levitical priesthood, but is through Christ, through that, through which we draw near to God, that's what perfection is. Perfection, in this context, is this drawing near to God. See, perfection wasn't obtainable via the law, but in Christ a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. You see that in the context. So this law couldn't make you perfect, but God, but Jesus and and his priesthood can. And what's the result of that? Drawing near to God. So this law, the result of it could not make you perfect. That priesthood, but Christ's priesthood could make you perfect, a.k.a. drawing near to God. That's the picture here. It's a perfection is a change of address. Perfection is through Christ, we reside in the presence of God. We're allowed behind the veil permanently. Again, I don't mean most fundamentally that through Christ we get warm fuzzies about God. What I mean is your soul is transported from the realm of darkness and now you reside in the throne room of God forever, period. 
And the reality is that the Levitical priesthood could not provide that. The Levitical priesthood could not provide permanent residence in the presence of God. And you listen, you see that resembled by the fact that the, the priest could walk in, but he had to make his, in the presence of God, and the Holy of Holies, but he had, to, he had to make it quick, right? Lest he'd be struck dead, and he had to do it in just all the right ways, and then he had to hurry up and get back out of there. But Christ goes in and dwells forever, right? It could not bring them into the presence of God. Levitical priesthood could not provide this. Again, now don't think the law in its totality. Think the law as, as it dealt with the payment of sin, the sacrificial system. It, see, the sacrificial system could only cover over temporarily those sins, but could not get rid of them. Okay? It couldn't give the new heart necessary the new heart in Christ, the, priest, the Levitical priesthood, the sacrificial system could not do that. And that's what's necessary to then dwell forever in the presence of God. It could not give the new heart needed. Now listen, two groups. In group one, you have those in the Old Testament that believed it was temporary and something greater was coming. They were saved. They believed that righteousness had to come apart from themselves and that something better, something eternal was coming. But the second group is those in the Old Testament and the Old Covenant that believed that this law was permanent and that there was no need for an ultimate permanent priest. They believed their good works could save them, hence the Pharisees. So they come out of that. So think of it this way. The the law demanded access to God, but it couldn't provide it. Like it demanded eternal access to God, but could not provide it. Again, we're talking about the imperfection of the inferior priesthood. It was never meant to be permanent. It couldn't bring perfection And three, a replacement came, verse 12. For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. So there's a change in the law. Again, what is meant by law here? He's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about all the rituals and practices concerning sacrifices and such. A covering over of the sins externally, temporarily, is done. That portion of the law is done. And I do believe the heart of the ceremonial law continues on. It's a conversation for another day. Meaning, what is the heart behind that? And we are bound to that. But those practices as a means, as a part of salvation, those are done. But here's the key, and this is part of the point I'm driving in here, is that the rest of the law has not been gotten rid of. That's not what the author is saying here. Most Christians, I think, in our day believe that. All we need to do now is love God and love neighbor. And my simple question to that is, well, then how do you define love God and love neighbor? 
You do that by the law. You see, the Judaizers were always harassing the Christians. And what were, how were the Judaizers harassing? They were trying to impose all of that sacrificial system on them. You have to go through Aaron. You have to do these sacrifices. What, what, are, they, what are they doing when they say that? They're saying that the sacrifice of Christ was not sufficient. So you have to do these things to be saved. Galatians is written in reaction to that. Galatians 4, 9 through 10. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I have labored over you in vain. Those are strong words from Paul. Here's what Paul's saying. I think I might have wasted my time with you. That's what he means by labor in vain. Why? Because they're returning to these elementary principles. What's he mean by elementary principles here? He's talking about because you've returned to this old covenant sacrificial system. Where you think you can be saved by just simply doing external acts of righteousness. Why? Because to turn to some other means to deal with our sin, any other means, is to turn away from the priesthood of Christ. So the picture being painted by the Judaizers is that you can save yourself by these external practices. Which, the the thing that's tricky here is... For many of us who grew up in a lot of the churches that I think make up our context here, we think that legalism is just, well, let me reject trying to earn my salvation by all these external practices. Like, you know, don't, don't drink alcohol, don't get tattoos, and don't say cuss words, right? And make sure you go to church on Sundays. And we think those external practices, we've, we've gone, well, that's not... We know that I'm not saved that way. But the problem is, is many of us swing the other way, and we say, well, well I, I live by grace. Well, I just live by grace. For most of us that claim that on this side, we're just living by a different set of standards. For most of us. We've just created a new law that's more amenable to our lifestyle choices. And we just say, well, that's the law, but it's not that law, so that must mean I'm saved. So I'm going to live by this law over here. That's where we have to, we have to throw both of those things out. Because that priesthood sucks just as bad as this one does. The difference, really, let me speak a little more plainly to you. The difference between those two priesthoods, you know, the one that is just keeping all of God's laws and the one that is just keeping all of your laws, it's just, these laws just look more pagan. That's the only difference. Both of them, you think, can save you. Well, both of them, you think, can make me feel saved. You see, there was a time when the external viewed as a foreshadow 
was a sufficient practice. I, I know this is, this, is, this is thick. But before Christ, to view the law that could just cover over, that could not give the changed heart, and was just a foreshadow of the coming Christ, before Christ, that was a sufficient temporary means of salvation. That's how the Jews, some of them rather, could be saved pre-Christ because they viewed it as temporary and looking forward to something to come, a.k.a. something to come from Melchizedek. That's why David, who is pre-Christ, could be said as a, a man after God's own heart. That's why Moses could be in the hall of faith. Why? Because he didn't believe that dealing with the external was good enough. Because he believed that something was coming that would deal with the internal. And that the external dealing, aka the sacrificial system, was temporary. So a replacement came. The fourth, the old line is gone. Again, the inferiority, the old line is gone. Verse 13 to 14. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. It, it's really just this simple. It's Judah and not Levi. So the old priesthood came from Levi, and he's saying here, Jesus came from Judah. So the line of Melchizedek, which is different than the Levites, has come to us through the line of Judah. Here's the point. It's just basic logic. All he's saying is one is not like the other. He's just saying Jesus is not like the, the Levites because he didn't come from the tribe of Levi. He came from Judah. If Jesus is from the line of Judah, then the line of priests that came from Levi is done. It's that simple. A new priest is is, is in the hood. It's Jesus. He came from Judah. Levites, you're done. All done. Gone. No need for it. And part of the point here is that to return to that priesthood, to return to the thought that dealing with my external is sufficient, is to look at Christ and say, meh. But the old line is gone. You see, the Levitical priesthood could not provide access to God, at least not permanent access to God. It could not provide a change of address. Why? Because it was external. It could not give a new heart. It couldn't deal with that inner part. It couldn't give new birth. It couldn't bring about regeneration because it was not permanent, because it was external. What we needed was, to tag off of last week and, and something Jeff said, uh, we need this anchor that is sitting in the throne room of God to which our soul is tied to. And that priesthood, the old priesthood, couldn't stay there. So how could it anchor us there? But Christ, who is the forever priest in the presence of God, we're anchored to him in the presence of God. I'm getting a bit ahead of myself, but nevertheless, Levitical priesthood could not provide access to God. No matter what they did, there always hung something between us and God. What was it? What's it symbolized by? 
the veil, the curtain veil, uh, the, the thing that blocked entrance into the Holy of Holies, the thing that was torn in two. I'm getting ahead of myself again. The perfection of the superior priesthood. The perfection of the superior priesthood. It's superior because Christ came from the line of Melchizedek. Verse 15, this becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek. And we're, we're defining lots of terms here, right? The first one is this, another. Let's define another. <laughs> There's two different words for another in the Greek. For us, we have to discern what does another mean by the context of which, at least the ESV here, is not helpful. I'm sure Rusty is Googling the CSV right now. Another can mean two different things. It can mean another of a different kind, and it can mean another of the same kind. The Greek word used by the author of Hebrews here is another of a different kind. So when he's comparing the priesthood that's come from Melchizedek in relation to the Levitical priesthood, he's saying this is a priesthood of a different kind. Not the same kind. It's a different one. To put it in other words, this is a priest who can do something different that this priesthood could not do. Now, I don't think you and I understand, listen, the significance of this. And I pray that the Lord sinks this deep in your soul, at least at some point. The Levitical priesthood could not change our hearts. But this priesthood of a different kind can and does. That means so many things. But the thing in which it means most importantly, that's the only way for you and I to have a permanent change of address into the presence of God. It's the only way. If it's a priest of the same kind, we are still out of luck. The next word to define here is when he says arises. What does arise mean? Like, well, duh, it means to arise. You can't use the word to define the word. Here's what's important with this word, is that it's in a voice that we don't have in the English language called middle voice. Now, I'm not going to give you a grammar lesson here. What you need to know is that middle voice is an action done to yourself, okay, versus an action done to other people and such. Again, I'm not going to give you a grammar lesson. But it's an action done to one's self. Here's what he's saying here. Aaron's priests could not make themselves arise as priests. But Jesus says, I arose as priest by myself. On my own account. By my own power. That's what he's saying. Again, a priest of a different kind. What's that mean? Here's what this means. Jesus is saying, the author here rather is saying of Jesus, this priest who's coming through the line of Melchizedek, he's saying that he is sufficient in and of himself. He needs no one else. 
That's a powerful statement being said by the word arise. He is superior because he came from the line of Melchizedek. Next, verse 16, he's superior because he deals with the spiritual and not just the physical. He deals with the internal and not just the physical. Verse 16, who has become a priest, not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. Let me reread this verse for you. Who has, uh, has, let me paraphrase it, who has become a priest, not on the basis of external requirements, but on the basis of his internal, indestructible character. His righteousness. See, here's what's important. This is, again, where knowing our Old Testament is crucial. It didn't matter the internal reality of the Levitical priesthood in order for them to serve as priests. To put it in common vernacular, their character did not matter. They were made priests because it was what the law required. You're a male Error in the line of Levi, priests. Boom. <laughs> Even if you didn't want it. Priest. Boom. If you were a man in that tribe, you were a priest. Additionally, there were simply a hundred and some odd physical blemishes that could disqualify them. But again, all external realities. Nothing involving character. Sort of like how most churches pick their pastors today. Can they externally speak well? Can they make hospital visits? Are they breathing? Can he make things look cool? And how well does he fit into skinny jeans and a fake lumberjack flannel? (laughs) I had to look at Jeff, see if he had on a flannel. (laughs) I got a flannel on. Oh, snap. And skinny jeans. Dang. (laughs) Look at that. (laughs) Moving on. (laughs) Here's the picture. Because only the physical mattered for the priests. So could the law only deal with the physical. Meaning it couldn't change the heart. They became priests simply because of the physical. But Jesus became priest by the power of his own life. He refers to it here as an indestructible life. Again, this is one of the beauties of preaching verse by verse through the Bible. Because hopefully as I say this, you'll connect some dots back. He has an indestructible life. This is a reference to his life as the Son of God, the King eternal, immortal, invisible, as 1 Timothy refers to him. How? Back to the cross and resurrection with me for a moment. As Jesus bears the sin of his people, he undergoes what? The wrath of God, right? All the weight of God's glorious judgment coming upon his shoulders. Do you remember when Jesus, understanding the frailty of his humanity, and he asks for God 
to give him the power to persevere through it. All the payment for sins coming upon him. And what does Jesus do? He bears it all. But he bears it all, and then in power, he comes to life. So what does he do? Here's the, the picture. Here's the indestructible life. The payment for sin could not destroy him. The payment for our sin could not destroy him. That is his indestructible life. He goes under the wrath of God and he comes out on the other side alive. Here's the contrast. These priests of Levi were not perfect themselves. And when they offered a sacrifice, their sacrifice stayed dead on the altar. It was temporary, and it couldn't change their hearts. But Jesus was perfect, and when he offered a sacrifice, himself as sacrifice, he didn't stay dead on the altar. Think of it this way. If the sacrifice was still dead on the altar, how do you know that the payment is paid in full? Kind of like making a payment on your debt and no one ever giving you a balance, how do you know that it has been paid in full? But when Jesus dies, he doesn't stay dead. It tells us he finished paying the payment. The debt is paid off. He didn't, his, he didn't need to stay there because his job was done. And he didn't need to go again because his job was done. We know that because he was resurrected, and because the curtain was torn. There's no need for him to go in there again. See, God answered his prayer that he would persevere all the way through. That's the indestructible life. The wrath of God could not destroy him. He drank it all. And thus, Jesus could do what no priest could ever do. Give us access to God. Bring us near to God. Next, his priesthood is forever. His priesthood deals with the spiritual. Next, his priesthood is forever. This is it's kind of like a Venn diagram. We're, we're overlapping with the last point here. But his priesthood is forever. Verse 17, for it is witnessed of him. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Right? Psalm 110. You should write this down. A forever priest is required for forever access. A forever priest is required for forever access. And no priest before Jesus had forever access to God. No priest before Jesus was a forever priest. He served for a time, and if he wasn't struck dead, he died of natural causes. Listen, you, you've got to uh, pause. Look, you've got to train your mind away from this first thought and to the second thought, and train it to think the second thought. The thought you need to train your mind away from is that the ground of my assurance is the feeling of assurance. 
That's the thought you got to train your mind away from. The ground of my assurance is the feeling of assurance. And you need to train your mind to this thought. My forever assurance is grounded on my forever address given to me by my forever priest. Let me say that again. (laughs) My forever assurance is the reality or is grounded in my forever address given to me by my forever priest. How do I... How do I work through assurance? Believe that your address is given to you forever by a priest who sits there forever. There are only two ways to live. Following a priest who will eventually die or following a priest who is the forever priest. That's your two options. There is no third way. That has to be the first place your mind goes. We are anchored there eternally. That's where we reside. That is our home. Next, the climax of this passage, verse 18 through 19. The old is replaced with the new. Hebrews 7, 18 through 19. It says, For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect, but on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Again, the ceremonial law, the thing that could only point to something greater, the thing that could only cover over temporarily, the thing always requiring more payment, the thing that couldn't change your address or give you a new heart, is replaced with the priesthood of Christ. Because Christ gives full perfection. Christ gives a better hope. You see, it's through Christ that we draw near to God. It's through Christ that our address is changed. It's through Christ that when our address is changed, all our affections begin to change. You see, because our lives are now anchored to the throne room of God where Christ is resides forever. Remember Hebrews 10, verse 19. It says, By the blood of Christ, draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith. See, the perfection of the superior priesthood, it could deal with the internal. It was permanent. It lasts forever. It changes us forever. My third point here. The perfection that Christ's priesthood gives us. Let's talk about the perfection that Christ's priesthood gives us. Basically, what being in the presence of God or drawing near to God means what does that mean? What's it entail? Like that's a, the word perfection and being drawn near to God is really a rich idea. 
Again, that's why it means so much more than just, do I feel near to God? So much more to it than that. It's certainly a part of it. Not like decrying that. I'm just decrying that as like your go-to. It's more of the byproduct of what we're talking about here. So I've got, I'm going to go through these quickly. I've got seven things. <laughs> seven things that this means. I should go read... Uh, you should go read John Owen on this passage and A.W. Pink, especially if you think I'm long-winded. You should go read them. Uh, but the, this list is from, from John Owen. Well, it's from A.W. Pink. By, or it's from John Owen by way of A.W. Pink. There we go. First of all, righteousness. Perfection means righteousness. Right? Christ is the Lord of our righteousness. Christ has brought us, that's Jeremiah 23, 6, and then Christ has brought in an everlasting righteousness, Daniel 9, 24, and therefore our believers are made the righteousness of God in Him, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. I can give you these later, these verses later if you want them. Now remember, as we talked about last week, righteousness precedes peace. So what do you think the second aspect of perfection is? It's peace. It's peace with God. You can't be in the presence of God. You can't draw near to God without righteousness. You can't do it without peace. As the high priest of the covenant, it was the role of the Lord Jesus Christ to make peace between God and sinners. Romans 5.10, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Isaiah 9.6 refers to him as the prince of peace. Colossians 1.20, he is such because he has made peace through the blood of his cross. The result of this is that believers have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. Third, light. We think like illumination here, understanding. God has designed for Christians a greater measure of spiritual light and knowledge of the mysteries of His wisdom and grace than were attainable under the law. That is such a gift to us. It's part of the work of the indwelling Holy Spirit. So the law could not make us perfect. Namely, could not give this indwelling of the Holy Spirit which guides us and illuminates how we understand and what we grasp from the Scriptures. God reserved for His Son the honor of making known the fullness of His counsels. John 1.18, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. Again, back to the Hebrews 10 passage. The law was just a shadow of the things to come. So the law was not the, the fullness of the expression of what God's intention and design was. Number five, I'm sorry, number four, access to God. Access to God. Perfection means access to God. Those with such perfection through Christ have now a freedom and a boldness to enter into the throne of grace. 
practically, why, why do we, like, when we sin, we just, like, try to run away from it, or we just try to, like, skirt it, or we, we try to make justification for it? Why, why not run boldly into the throne room of grace? How about when life is hard? Why do we try to just do it ourselves instead of quickly run into the bold room, or boldly into the throne room of grace? The, the new priesthood of Christ has granted us perfection such that we have access to do so. And when you refuse to do that, you're saying, I, you know what Jesus did, I don't care. But when we do, we're saying, oh, I'm so thankful that Christ has provided me this access to God when we run and run there quickly. Fifth, this perfection unveils a measure of our future state. Like what it will look like in the future. 2 Timothy 1.10, Christ has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Let me read for you a, a, big, a big statement here from Pink. Whatever knowledge of resurrection and eternal blessedness individual saints enjoyed in the Old Testament times, it was not conveyed to them by the work of the Levitical priesthood that there was this eternality to it, this future state. But now our great high priest has endured the curse for us, meaning this death, and he entered the devouring jaws of that death but he did not remain there. He triumphed over the grave. And in the resurrection of Christ, his people, that's us, have the evidence, the guarantee, and the pattern of our future victory too. So his perfection shows us that we too will triumph over the grave. What does he mean by the grave? What he mean by that is the eternal death that is due to you and I because of our sin, that that has no reign over us anymore. Our future state will be to triumph over that. He has gone on high, and that as our forerunner, Hebrews 6.20 talks about. Number six, joy. Joy. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. So it is true that many in the Old Testament rejoiced greatly in the Lord, yet it was not by virtue of the Levitical priesthood. Rather, the ground of their joy was that death would be swallowed up in victory. Isaiah 25.8, and that awaited the death and resurrection of Christ. Listen, that's why Abraham rejoices to see his day. John 8, but the Christian, so here's what you got to zero in on, the Christian has a joy unspeakable and full of glory, 1 Peter 1.8 says. It is that inexpressible satisfaction which is wrought in the love of God by Jesus Christ. 
This gives the soul a repose in all trials, refreshment when it is weary, peace and trouble and delight and tribulations, Pink says. Romans 5, 1 through 5. Again, just another facet of the diamond of this perfection. Number seven, glorying in the Lord. That's the fruit of joy. One chief design of the gospel is to exclude all human boasting and to empty us of glorying in ourselves. It's Romans 3, 27, Ephesians 2, 9. Pink says this, Thus it was promised of old, see Isaiah 45, 25, Glorying in the Lord is that high exaltation of spirit which causes believers to esteem their interest in heavenly things, high above things present, and to despise and condemn all that is contrary to that. Right? That's what it, looks, it means to glory in God. To despise everything contrary to it. And to esteem, meaning to place our interest more highly upon that. That is, again, another facet of the diamond. That is perfection. Number seven, that's the end of that list. Is he man's place was to be with God, right? Just to be with God. We were created, go back to the garden. Not to just be close, but to dwell in his presence. Not to just feel close to God, but to actually be close to God. To actually enjoy walking with him, talking with him, working beside him, building a kingdom with him, filling the earth with his glory with him. But man and woman said, no, nah, we got this, right? We can decide what is right and wrong on our own. And so entered the only two ways there are to live. There is to live. External acts of righteousness. I can do this on my own. I can be right apart from any internal change. And I can do it apart from God. Or the other way is the internal gift of righteousness. Whereby we are given it from Christ and His priesthood. And then we do works from a changed heart. We have a righteousness that works. You can be apart from God's presence as you pursue external acts of righteousness in order to earn your way into God's presence. Or you can receive God's internal gift of righteousness mediated by a forever priest who gives us a forever address change. And then we get to go work, enjoying His presence, walking with Him and talking with Him, changing diapers with Him, having hard conversations with Him, building a kingdom with Him and filling the earth with His glory with Him. You can draw near to Him through the power of the indestructible life of Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank You. Thank you for the gift that is a new priesthood that lasts forever, that is not uh, a given to the frailty of, of humanity, but conquered and uh, uh, lived through it, and proving this indestructible life, 
that now resides in your presence forever, anchoring our souls to the throne room of God. I thank you for the gift that is this new priesthood in Christ. May our hearts and minds enjoy the perfection that he gives. May we live in light of this this day. In Jesus' name, amen.